Welcome to Brain and a Vat. Uh, we are delighted to have uh, Brian Leiter on the show. Uh, Brian is probably one of the um, most famous philosophers in the world because he runs one of the most read philosophy blogs in the world. Uh, Brian is at the University of Chicago and uh, is dual trained in uh, philosophy and law and teaches jurisprudence. Um, I obviously have a soft spot for this being a philosopher lawyer myself, um, but um, Brian will be talking to us a bit about the Supreme Court today. And uh, would you like to start with a thought experiment? Yes, thank you. Um, so suppose you're charged with uh, appointing a, a justice to the Supreme Court. And in the United States, understand the Supreme Court has only nine members. I gather your constitutional court has 11 members, so a little bit bigger. So you have to appoint one justice to the court. Um, and you have, let's say, three or four finalist candidates. And these are all very distinguished and accomplished lawyers. Um, some of them have already served on lower courts. Some have tremendous practice experience. They've argued before the Supreme Court. Uh, one of them maybe is even a law professor, in addition to having argued before the court. Um, they have uh, uh, very good reputations in the professional community. They all get the highest rating from the American Bar Association, which evaluates candidates in terms of their competence and, and skill. Um, and they all have excellent educational backgrounds. They all went to Chicago or to Harvard um, or other major American law schools. And then the question is, uh, how do you choose among them? Right? And one possibility is that you might wanna get some more information about, well, who has argued before the Supreme Court more, right? Or who has had more experience as a judge? Or who has had more experience as a lawyer or more diverse kinds of experience representing say corporations and individuals, right? You might want to uh, approach it that way. Um, and my claim is, is that that wouldn't allow you to make an informed decision about who should be on the Supreme Court. That no matter how much you know about their legal experience, their skills, their talents, the kind of legal work they've done, right? What other professionals think of them, you still won't know what you really need to know in appointing a justice to the Supreme Court. So how do you do it? That's the question. So what I, what I like about this is this sort of notion that in certain kinds of fields, you reach a point of excellence where it becomes impossible to differentiate. So you could imagine a similar question coming up for you know, how you assemble a sports team or an orchestra, that there's some point we just go, these guys are all the best. Universities have this problem all the time. They go, everybody got a perfect SAT score. We need some other kind of differentiator. And I suppose the question is, you know, given that the American Supreme Court is seen as this political body in some senses and that the press keeps a running count of how many conservatives there are and how many liberals there are, um, that there'll be the sense of those are the things that should tip the scales. So the, the fact that the, that the media does keep track of that is in a way the giveaway about what's really going on. I do think there's one important difference with your analogy to the sports team and the orchestra, right? which is that at the end of the day, you may choose the next violinist based on some ineffable consideration, right? 
Um, but that's not what's going on with the Supreme Court. There is another kind of clear consideration that has nothing to do with legal skill, competence, or experience that is playing a huge role in who is appointed to the court. And that is the perceived moral and political outlook of the justices, right? Which is captured in that kind of crude way by saying, are they liberals or are they conservatives? Right? Uh, Donald Trump, who hopefully will not uh, be the president of the United States before long, um, just appointed a third justice to the court, Amy Coney Barrett. She was a professor at Notre Dame Law School. She herself had clerked on the US Supreme Court for the late Justice Anthony Scalia, a well-known proponent of constitutional originalism. She was a very good professor. I've heard this from people who teach at Notre Dame, very popular with students. She was appointed to the US Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. The US is a very big country, so we have all these federal appellate courts in different sections of the country. The Seventh Circuit uh, sits in Chicago and nearby states in the Midwest. So she, as it were, had all the, you know, she checked all the boxes of competence, skill, and experience. But that has nothing to do with why she was picked, right? As I, uh, as I like to say, there are probably two to 3,000 lawyers in the country, maybe more, who check all the same boxes. None of them were picked. She was picked because she is a conservative Catholic and people make assumptions about what her views will be on issues that the Supreme Court may have to decide. Okay? And I wanna emphasize, I think this is important to understand that the claim isn't that you know, presidents are picking justices with political ideologies who will then act lawlessly and override the law in favor of their political ideology. That's not the worry. The reason that the moral and political views of Supreme Court justices matter is because a Supreme Court is a very, very unusual court and most of the questions it hears do not have clear legal answers. That's exactly why they get to the Supreme Court. In the case of the US Supreme Court, it's a particularly extreme scenario. The US Supreme Court gets seven, 8,000 appeals from the lower courts, that is decisions of the lower courts, they're asking the Supreme Court to resolve the question, okay? One party appeals the decision. Of those seven or 8,000 cases, our Supreme Court hears just about 80. So hardly any, 1% of the cases that get appealed, they pick 1% to hear. And of course, the ones they're picking are the ones where nobody really knows what the law requires. And that means it is the task of the Supreme Court to bring certainty and resolution in cases where the law is silent or ambiguous. And you can't resolve those cases without exercising some moral and political judgment about what would be the best, the most just, the fairest, the most sensible thing to do. And that's why the moral and political views of the justices are essential when we appoint someone to the Supreme Court. So is your view that um, the moral and political uh, predispositions of the judges are playing the majority of the role? Is this something we can wait? We can say there's more of that than legal reasons for what they're doing? Um, or is there a more sophisticated relationship than just weighting the one above the other? So what I think in the case of the U.S. Supreme Court, and I want to be clear, um, 
it may not be possible to generalize from the U.S. Supreme Court to other legal systems because it will depend on the norms that govern judges and legal interpretation and legal reasoning, which vary system to system. But in the case of the U.S. Supreme Court, for any case that gets to the U.S. Supreme Court, for almost any case, there are occasional exceptions, almost any case that gets to the U.S. Supreme Court, there are two or more possible resolutions that you could defend with good legal arguments. And that means the decisive factor is the moral and political views of the justice, right? That is the law, jurisprudence like to say, the law underdetermines the decision, right? The law isn't completely indeterminate. There are certain outcomes that are not possible <laughs> that the law would rule out. But the problem is there are precedents or there's statutory text and there's constitutional text, um, all of which you could muster to support different outcomes. And then you got to choose among those outcomes. And how do you choose? That is informed by your moral and political values, which is why the president picks the justices with an eye to their moral and political ideology, which is why the media reports whether someone is a so-called liberal or a so-called conservative. I do want to emphasize that liberal and conservative in the political sense that we use it in the United States, right, where liberal is the party of the left and conservative the party of the right, doesn't map directly onto everything that the justices do, but it's a crude, you know, measure that picks out something real. Uh, now Justice Barrett is a conservative. I have no doubt about that. I can predict with some confidence things that the current conservative Supreme Court will do. They will declare affirmative action to be unconstitutional or in confliction, in conflict with the civil rights laws in the next two or three years. I would bet money on that, and I'm not a betting man. Uh, I will bet money that they will not overturn the constitutional right to an abortion, uh, but only because of fear of political backlash. And the constitutional right to have an abortion has been so undermined without overturning Roe versus Wade, the case that established that right in the early 1970s, that it's not necessary to overrule the constitutional right to have an abortion. And I predict that uh, you know, Justice Barrett will vote to overturn the fine affirmative action to be unconstitutional. Uh, I predict that the other conservative justices Trump has appointed will probably vote to do so as well. Indeed, there's a political science literature that tries to predict the votes of judges based on their ideology. It does pretty well in a lot of cases. It's not perfect, but pretty well. So I've got a couple of thoughts. It seems like when judges write their judgments, they have to justify their position. So they don't just say, as a conservative, this is what I'm going to do. And I believe that abortion is immoral. That's why I'm going to interpret the, the law this way. They don't do that. And Judge Barrett was at pains to say that her moral and religious beliefs are entirely separate from her role as a judge. And her job is to apply the law. Now, Roe versus Wade is an interesting case for us to think about. So in South Africa, we have uh, a modern constitution, which came out in 1996. And we have a very explicit right to privacy. Now, your constitution uh, is hundreds of years of old, and there is no explicit right to privacy. But in Roe, the court finds one. And I think finds is the right way of describing it because it's sort of drawn out um, from the ether of the text. The one view was that it was um, in the sort of 
pursuit of happiness stuff. Um, and the other one was that it was in the, uh, I think the one that's arguing is it's an enumeration clause that you, you might have these constitution lists certain rights, but it's not closed. Then the other one was that it was in the due process clause. So you had to try and unearth the right to privacy from a text which doesn't explicate it. Now that seems different to saying, look, um, we're in a situation where we're not sure what this word means. It now looks like you're in a situation where what a court is doing is writing the law, writing in a right that was not in a constitution. And I wonder if that goes beyond the role of what a judge, um, in other words, the role of a judge is ordinarily to interpret the law. Here, it seems like the, the judge becomes the, the legislature. Uh, so let me say a couple things about that. Um, first, I want to make just a, a, a small amendment to what you said about Roe versus Wade and the right to privacy. So Roe versus Wade is 1973. The right to privacy is discovered. Uh, we'll put discovered in quotes in 1965 in a different case called Griswold versus Connecticut. This was a case uh, that raised the question whether the state of the American state of Connecticut could criminalize the use of contraceptives by married couples. William O. Douglas, who was a legal realist, a real legal realist at the beginning in the 1930s when legal realism became influential in the United States, uh, he was part of that movement. By then, by 1965, he'd been on the Supreme Court for years and he discovered the right of privacy, he said, in the penumbra of the first uh, 10 amendments, our Bill of Rights. So the Bill of Rights says, you know, you can't be forced to quarter soldiers in your home. That one doesn't come up too much anymore, but it was on the mind of the framers of the Constitution for obvious reasons. Uh, it says you have freedom of association and freedom of religion and freedom of speech. It puts constraints on the ability of the police to seize your property, to search your home and things like that. And Douglas said, all of this seems to be concerned with the value of privacy and allowing the police to invade the marital bedroom to police the use of contraceptives is offensive to privacy, right? And it certainly sounds offensive to privacy. Okay. Roe versus Wade in 1973 was following up on a line of cases that came after, including Griswold. And the question was, the, route to, the right to privacy has been found we'll put found in quotes, does that right to privacy encompass the right to abortion? Now, to your real question about this, just but <clears throat> I wanted to sort of clarify the, the legal context here. I agree with you that there is a difference between what Douglas did in Griswold, right, which sort of started the trajectory that got us to Roe versus Wade and the constitutional right for a woman to choose to have an abortion. There is a difference in that kind of case than the sorts of cases I'm saying are typical of what the Supreme Court does. In the sense that you might have thought, and this is what one of the dissenters in Griswold said, that the law in Connecticut, right, is uncommonly ridiculous, right? Forget the exact phrase he used, but he said it doesn't violate the Constitution. And so you might think that that was a case where we really have law that was made by the court that didn't need to be made because the case had a clear resolution, right? Namely, that it isn't unconstitutional for the state of Connecticut to criminalize the use of contraceptives or to criminalize abortion. That's a, that's a possible view you could, you could take. But it also depends a little bit on how you think, what you think the doctrine of constitutional law is in the United States. 
So, for example, Justice Douglas, while he found the right of privacy in the penumbra of the first of the Bill of Rights, there was a tradition on the Supreme Court going back decades of finding interests to liberty or finding rights that were not specifically enumerated, right? And attribute finding them under the Equal Protection Clause or the Due Process Clause, as you mentioned. You might think in the United States, now my colleague David Strauss uh, here in Chicago has been a defender of this view, and I, I think there's a lot of plausibility to it, that in our legal system, what we have is a constitutional common law. So just as, so the, the common law, right, the idea of the common law is legal doctrines that evolve as the courts interpret the rules and apply them to new cases and think of new problems that arise. So a lot of the law, as Mark will know, the law of contracts, the law of torts, private wrongs, right, developed by the courts, that's the common law. And in the US, we do have a kind of constitutional common law, that is, Supreme Court interprets the very general language of the Constitution and has to apply it to very particular situations. And the constitutional law evolves as a result, right? And arguably, Douglas was doing something like that in 1965. I think he was taking a bigger jump than is typical, but it wasn't completely, you know, it wasn't completely out of thin air. There was a famous or infamous case in the United States decided at the very beginning of the 20th century called Lochner versus New York, where the Supreme Court said that um, the Constitution protects the right of each individual to have liberty of contract. The question was the constitutionality of state regulations on the working hours of bakers, right? They limited the amount of hours they could work because of course, some people were being forced to work 18 hours a day and whatnot. And the court said, no, it's unconstitutional. Everyone enjoys a liberty of contract under the constitution. Now, liberty of contract isn't in the constitution, just like privacy isn't in the constitution, but, uh, the Lochner court thought, found that there was an interest in the constitutional values of due process and equality and the liberty protected by the 10th Amendment and various other things, that this was also a constitutional value, that you can't read the Constitution in isolation from the world around it and the concerns that, that animate. Now, there's a Many people reject that approach. I mentioned Justice Scalia, uh, formerly of our Supreme Court. Uh, I think Barrett is closer to Scalia. Some of the other justices that Trump has appointed, like uh, Neil Gorsuch, much closer to Scalia on this score. I think their view is if it's not in the text of the Constitution, it's not a constitutional right, period. Maybe that view is going to triumph. Right? That is, maybe our norms of constitutional interpretation will change, in which case it'll be clearer that what Douglas did in Griswold was a mistake, right? was lawless. Even if we reach that conclusion, my claim still stands, which is that even if you're an originalist like Scalia or a textualist like Gorsuch or Barrett, there are still going to be lots of cases where you're going to have to exercise some moral and political judgment because the text won't tell you what to do. It'll be an open question how to resolve the matter. So this is an interesting situation for me, the sort of idea that your interpretive position um, could 
intersect with your, let's say, political position. So there's a famous case in South Africa from the 1950s. So we, you know, uh, introduced um, apartheid in 1948, and there was a the thing called the Group Areas Act, which prevented um, black people and white people from living in certain parts of the country, you know, designated spots. And so there were these two um, South Africans of Indian descent uh, who had a company, which they ran out of a whites-only area. And uh, the state um, said, you can't run your company here. It's illegal. Uh, you're Indians. And the court then had to determine whether or not that was the case. And they said, well, uh, companies don't have a race. And so they took a very strict literalist interpretation of what the Group Areas Act said, which was that this person cannot operate a business from here. And they said, it's not a person in the natural sense. It's a juristic person who doesn't have a race. These guys can operate. And so that was seen as a very progressive thing to do, an anti-apartheid thing to do. And that was done through this hyper-literal interpretation. Obviously, if you took a purposive view, you'd say, well, what the state wants to do is stop people of a particular racial group from operating businesses here, and they're using a corporate guise. And so we're going to follow the spirit of the law. Um, and so it seems that you could go either way um, in terms of a political agenda, depending on the interpretive tool you have. In the American context, what I wonder is this. So the claim will be that someone like Scalia is a conservative because he's an originalist or a textualist, uh, someone who cares about states' rights as well, and that the claim will be that states' rights is used as a guise for other kinds of agendas, that states, for example, might want to decide um, to allow abortions or um, to ban abortions, or they might have different views on gun rights, for example, uh, and that really someone like Scalia used this as a guise um, to kind of push a particular moral and political agenda. But here's the rub for my mind, is if you're going to sit on that court for 34 years, you can't keep changing your interpretive position. You're going to get caught out. So if the one day you say, well, I'm a textualist because it suits me to get to this outcome, and the next day I say, I'm a purposivist, you're going to get caught out and people won't take you seriously. That is right. That hasn't stopped uh, a lot of justices from picking and choosing their interpretive methodology, depending on the case. Um, Scalia was a bit more consistent than most. I, I think he deserves credit for that. You know, but uh, Scalia was also in the majority in Bush v. Gore in the year 2000, which decided our presidential election. That was not a textualist decision. It was the kind of decision that involved an interpretation of the Equal Protection Clause you usually associate with liberal justices. Yet it was all the conservative justices who made the argument that Florida had to stop the recount based on equal protection grounds, you know, that went well beyond the text of the precedent or anything. It was an utterly bizarre decision, right? And, you know, there I think there's only one explanation for the decision, which is they wanted a Republican president. <laughs> and so they came up with a rationale. But Scalia was fairly consistent in other cases, um, other justices less so. I mean, think about textualism for a minute, right? Everybody who is a textualist, textualism says the plain meaning of the text of the statute or the constitution controls its interpretation. So we don't ask questions like what was the real purpose of the statute? We don't ask what did people in the legislature intend? What did the framers of the constitution intend? All those questions are off the table. The question is what do the words mean? The problem is, is that the meaning of the words can often be indeterminate. And all textualists admit that sometimes you have to go beyond the text. Well, why do you go beyond the text? Well, sometimes textualists say, well, if the literal meaning of the text would produce an absurd result. 
Well, what's an absurd result? That requires some judgment, right? What may be an absurd result to you may not be an absurd result to me. That may be influenced by other views you have. We can go beyond the text if the text is ambiguous. Well, again, ambiguity doesn't always have clear-cut lines. You know, the meaning of words is a tricky thing. H.L.A. Hart, the great uh, English legal philosopher of the 20th century, uh, I think together with Hans Kelsen, one of the, the two most important legal philosophers of the century, you know, he pointed out that words in ordinary language have core applications, cases where any competent speaker in the language knows the word covers this. So in his famous example, no vehicles in the park. Well, we all know that the Mercedes-Benz sedan is a vehicle. Any competent speaker of English knows that, so it's covered by the rule. But the word vehicle also has what Hart called the penumbra. Little, little slightly different sense of penumbra than Justice Douglas's in Griswold. The penumbra means those cases where even competent speakers of the English language may be a little uncertain whether the word applies. My favorite example these days is the Segway, you know, those things you stand on that are motorized, right? Are those vehicles? And people tend to have different views about that. Is it covered by the prohibition on vehicles in the park? And this is a feature of language that's, that's important. Another feature of language is important is that, as it were, the dictionary meaning is not necessarily what, the, what linguists call the, the, the pragmatic meaning, that is the meaning of the words in a particular context. Take the phrase, cut it out. The context is awfully important to knowing what the meaning of that command is. If I'm a kindergarten teacher talking to a bunch of little children who have their book and their scissors out, cut it out means they're supposed to cut something out from the book. On the other hand, if I'm at the dinner table and my kids are being rather noisy and talking with their mouth full and horsing around and I say, cut it out, I'm not expecting them to pull a scissor, right? The pragmatics of the context determines the meaning. In one case, it means literally cut something out. In the other case, it means stop doing what you're doing, behave yourself, observe the norms of etiquette for the occasion and so on. So these are fundamental features of our language. So you can be a textualist, you can't dodge these problems. And if you can't dodge these problems, it means there are gonna be cases that come before you where you're gonna need some other kind of tools to figure out how to resolve the case. It won't necessarily mean you have to go straight to your moral and political values. But sometimes it will. I, I, I'm interested, actually, in the South African case you, uh, you mentioned from the 1950s. And Mark, I want to ask you a question about that, if that's, if that's allowed. Um, you know, when I put my legal realist hat on, I'm a legal realist. That is, I think that especially in the higher courts, the appellate courts, the courts that hear appeals from lower courts, and the Supreme Court is at the very top of that hierarchy, I think especially in those cases, the law is indeterminate. The law underdetermines what the court can do. And so courts do have to make judgments, moral and political judgments about how to resolve problems. But one of the things when you have your legal realist hat on is you wonder about the social political context in which a decision occurs. So here's a, I'm gonna throw out a realist hypothesis about that case. You tell me whether it's nonsense or whether there might be something to it. I wonder whether there weren't an awful lot of very successful Indian run enterprises, businesses, corporations that would have been affected by a different decision in that case. And whether <clears throat> the court wasn't well aware that this would be kind of 
an economic disaster <laughs> to apply that law in the literal fashion. And as a result, force all these productive enterprises to relocate, which would be disruptive to their economic activity. Is that a crazy hypothesis? I think it's not. I mean, it sort of seems in line with like Posner's account of, you know, the purpose of the law really is uh, partly for economic reasons, you know, that you, you want these economic goods to flourish. And I, and I think we see a, a little bit of that in our law. Um, I, I have a feeling there that what you had um, was a strong moral opposition to apartheid from those judges. And that okay. they put the idea of, um, you know, forcing people out uh, of their businesses um, was illegitimate. And part of this is because, you know, uh, this is an interesting feature of, of you know, how judges are, are put in place is that they could be put in place by a prior regime, be there for a very long period of time, and then there's right. a new regime in place. And so you wind up with a tension between, you know, the government of the day and the judges of the day. Um, and so in South Africa for quite a long time, you had a set of what we would call classically liberal judges, I suppose, who were opposed to um, the Nationalist Party government apartheid policy and used the law as well as they could have. And at some point, some of them thought that the law was was so clearly immoral and unjust that they could no longer play a role in applying it and uh, then, you know, stepped off the bench. That's interesting. Now, I, you know, what I noticed in that characterization is you describe them as classically liberal. So they had a particular moral and political outlook that came into play where it could in order to resist certain aspects of the apartheid, the apartheid regime. I, I've been speaking about moral and political judgment being important, that justices on the Supreme Court have to exercise that kind of judgment a lot of time. But I mean it fairly broadly to encompass also economic considerations. Because if you think economic efficiency, as Judge Posner thought, is relevant, that's a moral and political judgment in, in my terminology. But I think one of the insights of, uh, of legal realism, certainly in the United States, is that you can better understand what the courts do when you understand the political or social context in which the particular problem arises. So I think scholars have shown, for example, uh, very persuasively that the liberal Warren Court of the 1960s, when the Supreme Court's Chief Justice was Earl Warren, this was... Warren was on the court when they decided Brown versus Board of Education, which desegregated the schools. But during the 1960s, um, they made a series of decisions that were very controversial with conservatives in which they granted criminal defendants all kinds of rights. They said criminal defendants have a right to competent legal counsel and the state has to pay for it if they're indigent and they cannot afford it. They said that if the police failed to give the famous Miranda warning, to suspects, right? You know, you have the right to remain silent, you have the right to have a lawyer present and so on. I think everybody in the world knows it now, thanks to television, right? <laughs> uh, if they fail to give the Miranda warning, any evidence that is acquired subsequent to the failure is excluded from court. These decisions were controversial. People said this went beyond the text. Well, of course it went beyond the text, right? because the text of a constitution is that it doesn't try to anticipate every particular kind of issue that might arise, but it does give criminal defendants due process rights. And it's a reasonable question. Are you getting fair process if you don't have a lawyer representing you in a criminal charge? So that's kind of how they were thinking about it. But the context I think is crucial. The context is all these decisions are being made during the civil rights movement, right? When the nation's attention is being drawn 
to the apartheid regime in the southern United States. And it was an apartheid regime supported by state terror. And everyone was focused on what the police were doing in the South, which was egregious. And you don't really understand these general decisions about the rights of criminal defendants unless you realize that the Supreme Court justices understand what's going on, especially in the South. Not only in the South, there was police misconduct in the North, but the civil rights movement in the United States showed a light on what was essentially an apartheid regime supported by state terror and police violence. That I think is a, what I would call a general kind of legal realist insight is that you don't understand what courts are doing and what judges are doing unless you understand something about the social, political, economic context precisely because that influences them. And indeed that can influence them even when the law is clear. But when the law has a gap in it, it surely is gonna influence them. It's gonna influence the court in how it decides to fill in the gaps that exist in the law. So this is worrying for a non-lawyer like me. Okay, so the non-lawyer like me looks at this and says, I wonder why the law is legitimate. Here's a picture where the law does seem legitimate. Um, suppose you have the citizens of, of a country and they vote in a certain, um, a certain leader um, and a certain uh, legislature and they decide the laws for the country and those laws are then applied textually by the judges. So they just, they just go according to the letter of the law. Then it seems like you've conferred legitimacy on the judgments because the laws that are being used to apply the judgments are created by the legislature. Those who create the legislature have been elected. They've been elected by the people. And so through a democratic process, and then down the other side, you've got, you've got this conference of legitimacy. But now if the judges are not applying the letter of the law and they're starting to insert um, their own moral or political views or the, the, the sociological views of the time, uh, the social views of the time, then isn't something else happening? And isn't that undermining to the extent that, that, that the judges are able to, to find ambiguities in the text and reinterpret the text, isn't that um, delegitimizing the law? Good, that's certainly a, a fair question. Let me first contest one premise that was in there, which is quite important, which is that what's happening in these kinds of cases we're talking about is that the judges are ignoring the letter of the law. The claim here is that the letter of the law doesn't settle these cases. The cases are in, genuinely indeterminate. Lawyers of good faith could argue both ways. Judges of good faith could reach different decisions. So I'm not supposing that the judges are doing anything illegitimate, improper here. I am supposing that a Supreme Court gets a lot of cases where there is no clear letter of the law, where there is no clear precedent where it isn't at all apparent what the law, the law requires of them in that instance. So when we're talking about those kinds of cases, and they really exist, and I think they exist to varying degrees in every legal system, whatever legitimacy the decision has is assuming these are appointed rather than elected judges. In the United States, many judges in the state courts are actually elected, but put that to one side, right? Our federal judges judges in the federal legal system that governs the whole nation, they are appointed. Whatever legitimacy that process has probably doesn't derive from a democratic process. 
No, it's arguable. I mean, arguably, there are some very conservative uh, voters in the United States who vote voted for Trump. I've had people tell me this. They voted for Trump because they thought Trump would appoint the kinds of judges they like. Okay. Put that to one side. Um, whatever legitimacy the court decision has when it fills in the gaps in the law isn't going to derive from uh, the democratic process. Does that mean it's illegitimate? Not necessarily. Think of it this way. This is how I like to think about it. Think of it in kind of Hobbesian terms. I hear reference Thomas Hobbes, the great English political philosopher. It's very important for social peace that we have authoritative resolution of our disputes. Having a system of courts which are charged with deciding questions authoritatively, resolving disputes, even in cases where the law is unclear, has an awful lot of value for society to function. Okay? Not every case and every problem can be sent back to the legislature. It doesn't work that way. The world is too complex. Too many unanticipated problems arise. We wouldn't want a legal system that tried to anticipate every problem because it would come up with crude solutions. Like, if it isn't clear, defendant wins. Nobody wants to live in that world, right? It would make no sense. When we have a system of courts that is staffed by competent judges who are people of good judgment, we get authoritative resolution of disputes and hopefully pretty good resolutions, hopefully not idiotic resolutions. It depends on their judgment. If they have no judgment, then we're in trouble. But if they have good judgment, they will fill in or complete the law in ways that are reasonably sensible and will have an authoritative resolution of our dispute. That's what I would call a kind of Hobbesian legitimacy. Hobbes famously argued that uh, life outside of the state, outside of law, you know, the state of nature, as he called it, would be nasty, brutish, and short, right? We would all be at each other's throats. And he says, we're much better off submitting to an absolute ruler, a Leviathan, than we would be in the state of nature. Well, we don't have to go that far. We can make a much weaker claim here, which is we're much better off as a society having a system that provides authoritative resolution of disputes where judges exercise good and honest judgment to complete the law in the places where the law is unclear, and thus the dispute is brought, brought to an end. And we don't have self-help and, you know, we don't have the mafia system of dispute resolution, which is a little different. And there are real costs to that <laughs> for everyone. All you need to do is look at Sicily, right, when the mafia still had free reign. So that, I think, is a, an important argument for having a system of courts that brings about authoritative resolution of disputes, even when those courts have to make law. And courts sometimes have to make law. It's just built into the nature of language and legal systems that some disputes, you can't get a resolution from the law that already is out there. A new judgment has, has to be made. And there's a lot of value to that, I think, for any, any society. It's not an absolute value, as I say, if the, if the judges are really, you know, foolish, stupid, you know, nasty people, if they're all Scrooge, right, you would get the, you'd get the gaps in the law filled in in ways you, you don't want to live with, right? The contrast would be is if all your judges are like your former uh, constitutional court justice, Albie Sachs, who's humane, who's sensitive, who has experience in the world, who understands people, um, who understands the problems that are being confronted by society and makes sometimes controversial moral judgments, but 
makes them in good faith and largely, you know, I think there's a pretty good case he did the right thing most of the time. Um, if you have judges like that, then you get authoritative resolution of disputes that contribute to social peace and that people can live with, right? And that allows society to move on. So I'd like to push you on a difficult type of case. So it's not the case where the judge that fills in uh, where there's an ambiguity um, is a bad judge or a pernicious judge. The type of case that I have in mind is where um, the letter of the law is not determinate. So it doesn't tell you which of two options should be chosen. And just assume for the for the purposes of this case, that there's two options that should be chosen, that could be chosen. And, right. and there's good reasons, good moral reasons for, for both options. Um, but someone of a certain political leaning would choose one option and someone of a different political leaning will choose another option. And there, there would be, a, you know, a, a morally uh, um, upstanding person could choose either of them, um, but, but it has very significant ramifications uh, on the future of people who have to follow that law going forward. Right. Um, it seems like in that kind of case, it is arbitrary which of those solutions is chosen. It just depends on the judge that you get. If you've got a different judge who is still a morally upstanding person, fully adept at his job, he would choose a different, a different or she would choose a different option. That suggests an arbitrariness in the law. Now, I understand the Hobbesian view, which is that you need a solution. So you need, you need to choose one, right, just so that people can live going forward and know what the law is and these kind of cases can be decided. But still, that doesn't quite seem like enough to generate legitimacy. It seems like we need something a little bit more. We need more than arbitrariness, where you have two equally good options that both apply equally well to the letter of the law. It's a nicely framed uh, challenge. Um, and let me say first that if non-arbitrariness in the decision were the criterion for legitimacy in judicial decisions, there would be very few legitimate judicial decisions, even in cases where moral judgment isn't required. Lots of cases, Mark, you can tell me whether you disagree with this, but certainly my impression is there are a lot of cases that could have gone the other way simply on legal grounds, and they don't. And to some extent, the explanation is just the judges you drew or the, the five who happen to be on the Supreme Court. Do you agree with that, Mark? Does that fit your experience as a lawyer? Well, one of my colleagues said to me, so he, he did his uh, BCL at Oxford, um, and he said he sort of you know, was trained in the positivist tradition, the idea that, you know, the law is found in the sources. And he said, the more time he spends in practice, the more of a legal realist he becomes. And that the first question <laughs> is, who's on my bench? Uh, because this person is going to be, you know, very keen on labor rights, and this guy's going to be very pro-business, you know, and this guy's going to care about the poor. And so the moral and political stuff really plays an enormous role. Um, and we play interesting games as practitioners about which way we think the court's going to go. And often that discussion is not about what the law says. We think it's about their underlying values. Yeah. Okay, good. So I, the truth is I've never met any experienced lawyer who wasn't a legal realist. So I think there's quite a lot of arbitrariness. Then the question is, uh, is that compatible with legitimacy? Couple things to, uh, to say about this. First thing is there may be cases where it's not and where people shouldn't accept the decision. 
as someone who's both a legal realist and a legal positivist, right, I do think it's an important aspect of the positivist theory of law is that it, it reminds us to separate the question, what is the law, from the question, what ought it to be? And from the fact that some norm is legally valid, that is, is a norm of the legal system, it doesn't follow that we should accept it as legitimate or even obey it. We may have to weigh the costs of not obeying it, right? But I don't want to say that sometimes the right conclusion isn't that the decisions are not, um, not legitimate. There is also an ambiguity in talk about legitimacy right, um, between what uh, is often called the sociological sense of legitimacy and then the philosophical sense of legitimacy. So the sociological sense of legitimacy is just the idea that people in fact accept some institution or state of affairs and go along with it. Whereas the philosophical sense of legitimacy is concerned with the normative question, ought they to accept this state of affairs? Now, I think the Hobbesian answer that I've been describing is the, the best one to give an answer to the philosophical question. That's my view. On the sociological side, I mean, one thing we know is that many institutions and states of affairs are accepted by people as legitimate for reasons that philosophers would think are mistaken. You know, there's still a lot of nostalgia for Stalin in Russia, right? That seems to us a little surprising, <laughs> okay? The legitimacy of Stalin wasn't simply a matter of fear or Hitler for that matter. We can find lots of examples like this, right? So people accept institutions and states of affairs as legitimate for many different kinds of reasons. Some of us that might strike us on reflection is rather, rather unsound. So the courts could, are in fact, I think, pretty sociologically legitimate. I think it's partly because people don't understand what courts do, and maybe that's a good thing from the standpoint of social peace. But it's also because legitimacy is affected by various other kinds of considerations, sociological legitimacy. So there is some evidence that people accept court decisions as legitimate as long as certain procedural norms are satisfied. If people feel they got a hearing, and were treated fairly and got to make their case, they accept the result as legitimate. That's an interesting fact, right? Even if there is this ultimate arbitrariness there, if people feel they get a chance to present their grievance and it's taken seriously, they will accept the result as legitimate. There's some evidence of that. In the case of contentious social and political issues that courts decide, the evidence seems to be that people uh, evaluate the legitimacy of the decision based on whether or not it comports with their political ideology. And the law completely drops out of it as a factor, right? So, uh, you know, <clears throat> people accepted Griswold as legitimate, the case saying that Connecticut couldn't criminalize the use of contraceptives by married couples because people thought, I'm just, I don't know for a fact, but my guess is most people thought Thank God, that is ridiculous, right? That the, the state of Connecticut can tell a married couple they can't use contraception, right? Um, you know, reactions to Roe versus Wade, basically, the abortion decision basically tracked, you know, political ideology. The reaction to court decisions about the legality or constitutionality of affirmative action or what's sometimes called positive discrimination, right? entirely tracks political ideology. People don't get hung up at all on the procedure, on the arguments, on the legal arguments. They just wanna know what did the court decide. And if it comports with what they already believe, then they're happy. So what that tells us is you can have a lot of sociological legitimacy for an institution like the courts, even if 
there are the sorts of dilemmas like the one your, your hypothetical uh, posed rather starkly. So in the situation where a judge is confronted with a very clear law that they view to be immoral, and they decide to go the other way, they say, I'm not going to apply this law, I'm going to impose my moral position. And I have, a, I have a colleague who took on an acting appointment as a judge and was faced with such a situation. He said, there's a little old lady fighting an insurance company and the insurance company have got her beat on the law and the law is unjust. And I don't care. I'm going to let her win. And he did. And, and he deliberately produced a judgment that he knew to be illegal. He did not shirk away from that in our, in our discussion. And what was interesting was that ultimately the law changed to sort of recognize the, let's say, more just state of affairs. But I wonder in that situation whether he ceased to be a judge, that being a judge is not just about resolving disputes, it's about applying the law. And then what you have done is you've become a moral crusader, you've become an activist of sorts, uh, you took off your, your judge hat and you put on another hat, um, and maybe you did the right thing, but it seems like you did something illegitimate in some way. Okay, so there, I think there is a conventional and plausible view according to which judges' primary duty is to apply the law when it's clear, okay? Um, but, you know, look, judges are also human beings. And as human beings, they also, you know, you might say they ought to do the right things. And while doing the right thing, right, often is gonna require them to follow the law, there may be exceptions. Now, I can't comment on this particular case Right? It's hard, hard to know what to think without some, some more details, whether it was really the right thing. You know, um, Carl Llewellyn, one of the great American legal uh, realists, he described the kind of scenario you're, uh, that, that, that you've recounted, Mark, as, as involving what he called fireside equities. That is where judges are responsive to particular features of a party, right? The little old woman, right, who needs the money, okay? Um, you know, that's a very kind of particularistic decision-making that is probably has real costs if there's too much of it, because after all, other people are planning and organizing their affairs with the expectation that the more general rule is going to be abided by. But there can also be circumstances where making the particularistic decision, saying this poor woman, it's a shame the law treats her so badly here, I'm going to decide for her anyway. Sometimes a decision like that, and this is part of what I heard in this, this story, could lead to law reform that is actually very constructive. So in this case, you tell me the law actually changed in a way that retroactively would have helped her the way this particular judge did. So yes, judges ought to apply the law, but I think it would be crazy to think there is never circumstances where they ought to do something else. And you know, all you have to do is you know think about cases that arise in horrific legal systems, you know, the Nazi legal system, where the law requires the judge to, um, you know, uh, to dispossess uh, the Jewish family of their home. Gee, I don't find that a hard case for saying the judge ought not to follow the law, even though it's absolutely clear. But it's, you know, it's always easier in the extreme cases to say, my God, you know, you really ought to comply with the, with the law. And I think, you know, this is true in every profession. In every profession, there are circumstances where people ought not to abide by professional norms because there are very compelling moral considerations that are in play. Because acting in accordance with your professional norms are going to affect 
people, right? You know, think of the aeronautical engineer who has a professional obligation not to describe, you know, to reveal to the public anything about the firm's activities, the company he works for, who becomes aware that a design flaw in an airplane is being allowed to go into production. He has a professional obligation to keep his mouth shut, but he shouldn't. He ought to, in fact, alert the world because you know important human interests are affected by this misconduct by the, by the firm. So I don't think it's peculiar to judges. I think everybody, regardless of professional role, confronts situations where from the standpoint of their moral conscience, they ought to act otherwise than their professional obligations would dictate. So something I'm, I'm curious about is if there are situations where morality should override the law, um, in the sense that the judge should do what the law does not say he should do. Why have the law at all? Why not just go straight to those moral intuitions or to some sort of moral system that we codify like utilitarianism? Why, why not just go directly there, drop the law altogether and, and have a big utilitarian calculator? Very appropriate uh, rejoinder to, to what I've just said. So let me try to say a couple things about that. <laughs> The, the threshold problem is that we don't have a general moral system that we can all agree on. What we have are particular cases where most people share the same moral intuition, that it would be fundamentally unjust for the law to punish someone solely because of their religion or their race, for example. We've got particular judgments like that where people I, you know, generally can agree, but we don't have a moral system that would work to uh, you know, just generate results when applied systematically. Now, Jeremy Bentham, you know, sort of founder of modern utilitarianism in the late 18th and early 19th century, he actually thought the entire law should be redone in utilitarian terms. Indeed, as you will know, he thought that utilitarianism should replace what passed for morality because he thought what passed for morality was, and he was right, had a lot to do with what we regard as matters of etiquette. It really wasn't concerned with human happiness and well-being. So you could have reformed the law in purely utilitarian terms, and that was kind of what he hoped for. What the law actually does, I think, is it builds in a mix of utilitarian elements, non-utilitarian moral considerations. You know, I think the, the basic fact about our moral outlook in the post-Enlightenment Western society. I don't want to generalize beyond that. And maybe this is already too much of a generalization. But I think the basic fact about our moral outlooks is that they're a mishmash. They're not coherent. We have some very powerful non-utilitarian or deontological intuitions. We have some very powerful utilitarian intuitions. And the law, in a way, reflects that. Of course, there are a lot of things that the law does that as it were, are morally neutral. Morality is indifferent as to whether we drive on the right or the left. You folks are not immoral for driving on the other side of the road, nor are we immoral <laughs> for driving on the side we drive on. It's a matter of moral indifference. Once it's settled which side we drive on, it becomes quite ethically significant which side you're on. Um, but the law does a lot of things like that, right? It coordinates our behaviors in ways. But that gets to a more important thing about the law, right? Which is, so the law is this mishmash of utilitarian and non-utilitarian considerations 
as well as the resolution of various kinds of coordination problems. The other value of having the law there is that it does permit people to plan their affairs. You know, I want to make a valid will to dispose of my property after my death. Having clear rules about wills and inheritance is very, very helpful. I'm starting, I run a business, you know, that involves uh, producing some dangerous waste products that have to be disposed of. Knowing what the environmental law rules are is very important to being able to plan, right, that I dispose of this in a way that isn't going to lead to harm or criminal liability or, or liability in tort law and so on. So that's a big reason why we have law, right, is to allow people to live together uh, and to plan their affairs in a way that respects some moral limitations. Though, of course, many things that we think morally, that people might think morally you ought to do aren't legally required. Famously, many legal jurisdictions, including the United States, do not have laws requiring good Samaritan behavior. I am allowed to walk right by somebody, you know, bleeding to death after a car crash and not call the police, not do anything. Other legal systems impose legal requirements, but I don't think anyone has a problem saying that if I walk by the car crash and don't do anything, I am morally blameworthy, right? I'm a creepy person, even though what I did wasn't illegal. So there's still a lot of space between what the law demands and what morality um, demands, but the virtue of codifying a whole set of demands as legal requirements, as well as codifying a whole set of rules that allow people to accomplish things like make a will or get married or enter into a contract or form a corporation or a partnership and so on, is that it facilitates right, our collective life, our individual and collective lives together. If we could all agree on the correct moral theory, well, then we could reform the law accordingly. But as I like to point out, even the moral philosophers can't agree on the correct moral theory. <laughs> so it's rather unlikely that, uh, that anyone else will. The moral philosophers for 2000 years can't agree on the correct moral theory. You know, my conclusion from that is that, well, I draw various conclusions, but one is our moral views are, don't hang together in a systematic way. Maybe that's a good thing, right? And the fact that the law reflects that, that utilitarian you know, impulses dominate in certain areas and deontological moral intuitions, intuitions about rights, for example, inviolable rights dominate in other areas, that may be a very good thing. We all know it's utilitarianism, right? That's, that's the answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, that's the answer utilitarians give. <laughs> when you read Kantians and they look at you utilitarians and they think you people are morally depraved, right? Yeah, so this is a long-standing debate between Mark and I. I'm a utilitarian. Mark is a Kantian with some utilitarian okay. uh, kind of limitations. Um, right. So yeah, this, this is a long-standing debate. And uh, for anyone listening to this, we, we have lots and lots of episodes on utilitarianism versus uh, deontology or Kantianism. Very good. What's interesting is that I, I think I've defended this mishmash approach with Jason over our many years of friendship. Um, and I think that is what our law looks like. It's this set of conflicting values kind of thrown together. The common law has sort of developed in this very haphazard way. Um, I mean, the one thing that I think all of us will agree on is that Jason is without a doubt morally depraved. <laughs> I see. Okay, good. <laughs>
<laughs> yeah, but I mean, I've I've much more fun, Mark. <laughs> I'm not going to deny that either. <laughs> <laughs> but look, would... if you if you have any listeners who are followers of the the English philosopher G. E. M. Anscombe, who was of course a, a Catholic, a very serious Catholic, and a proponent of a kind of virtue ethics, and she thinks that both Kantians and utilitarians are depraved <laughs> and don't understand what morality is about at all. But this, unfortunately, not alone. is the history yeah. of moral philosophy. There's a lot of profound disagreement, even among people who try to think about these questions systematically. So it would be remiss of me not to ask this question, because I think it'll be on a lot of our listeners' minds, is that the Supreme Court may be tossed with one of the most momentous decisions, which is deciding the outcome of a contested election. And the Supreme Court, you know, was faced with this question 20 years ago in Bush versus Gore. And I suppose the question is this, if President Trump has appointed a third of the judges that currently sit on this court, and that the press reporting on it is that this is a conservative court, 6-3, the way they've described it in these crude terms, does that mean that that court then will use its political leanings to confirm a Republican president, regardless of the facts of the dispute that are put before them? Okay, so I don't think it does, though the 2000 Bush v. Gore case is a worrisome precedent in this regard, because there, as I said earlier, I, I think they essentially did. You know, in Bush v. Gore, there was, you know, that was a sort of nakedly political decision by the conservative justices. I don't think we're going to get into that situation this time around. For one thing, I don't think any of these cases are going to get to the Supreme Court because they're all garbage cases. Indeed, Trump's lawyers are resigning left and right because if you go into court and you make completely specious arguments with no prospect of evidence to back up your factual claims, you can end up getting sanctioned by the court um, you know, and having to pay substantial fines. The other big difference between now and the year 2000 is in the year 2000, the entire election turned on the votes in one state, Florida. That is not the case here. Trump is going to have to prevail in at least three states to make any headway, maybe only two if he gets Pennsylvania as one of them. Biden won by too many states for there to be a viable legal case. But even if, let's suppose, contrary to what's going to happen. One of these cases actually gets to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has al had already decided a few of the early cases that are being litigated, and they, they split in terms of who they were good for politically. Some were good for Biden, some of the decisions, some were good for Trump. They didn't track, they didn't say, we want Trump to win. They tended to reflect what actually looked like, you know, sort of principled views, such as if voters have already voted based on certain publicly announced rules, we're not going to fool with them after the fact. <laughs> we're not going to change those rules. On the other hand, if voter behavior did not rely on certain rules, then you know, we might review them for their constitutionality and so on. This is an extremely conservative Supreme Court that we have in the United States right now, perhaps the most conservative in you know, in the last hundred years, a little hard to compare with earlier periods, but not all conservatives, as it were, are the same. <laughs> Some of them, I think, are nakedly politically ideological on the current Supreme Court. Of the justices that Trump has nominated, I'm not sure most of them are. And of course, there is huge cost to the Supreme Court in deciding a contested election. This goes back to sociological legitimacy. Bush v. Gore was contested, but not 
as it were, bitterly. That is, Gore was ready to concede, you know. Um, it wasn't like the nation was, you know, that all the people voted for Bush thought that Gore was the Antichrist or vice versa. That's not like we have today. This is the kind of situation in which the Supreme Court prefers not to, you know, step into the morass if it can avoid it. I'm sure Chief Justice Roberts, who has been surprising people a lot lately because he wants to keep the court out of political firestorms. Right? I think he's worried about it because he's worried about the sociological legitimacy of the court. I can't imagine he's gonna to wanna to get, get near this one. So bottom line is by the time this airs, I may have been proven completely wrong, but I don't think this is gonna end up before the US Supreme Court. I don't think the Supreme Court is gonna decide the election and I don't, I'm not that worried that they want to decide it for Trump. I think like all normal people, they want the man to be gone. <laughs> There's a couple of exceptions. I think a couple of the justices are so, you know, such ideological diehards that they would write anything in order to keep the presidency Republican. Though remember because of, uh, you know, the way our system works, almost certainly the Senate is going to be controlled by the Republicans. It's, there's going to be two runoffs in the state of Georgia. If they both go to the Democrats, that would be amazing, but it's extremely unlikely. So Mitch McConnell will continue to be the other president of the United States for the foreseeable future. That's the uh, Senate majority leader, the Republican Senate majority leader. And, you know, uh, so it's not like Republicans are lost. In fact, the Biden administration, the Democratic administration will be severely hampered by McConnell because McConnell is basically a fascist. He'll do what it takes to win. So he, he's going to make it hard for Biden to avoid judges, to get legislation passed and so on. Well, Brian, this has been an absolutely delightful conversation. Um, yeah, a lot of fun. Thanks. It's been so much fun to talk about talk about the law, talk about philosophy, talk about politics, um, all of our favorite things. And uh, we would <laughs> love to have you back sometime soon. Um, some of our guests will know that you are one of the world-renowned experts on Nietzsche. And I think that would be a, a really fitting episode to talk about his work. Um, thank you again for, for spending time with us. Good. Thank you. Thank you both. Very good questions. Enjoyed this conversation a lot. And I uh, hope we'll find a chance to talk about something very different, namely good old Nietzsche at some point in the future. So thank you. Thanks a lot.